we're going to look at the bride of Christ. I hope I can get through this because it is very, very touching to me. But as we reflect upon the bride of Christ, which is who you and I are, we've talked about our identity in Christ. We've talked about who Christ is in us and who we are in Christ. Once you begin to understand by revelation who you are and your identity, obviously, and your destiny or your destination of where we're going, it changes your life. You begin to live. Jesus said, I only do what pleases the Father. And you know, when we sin and we stumble and fall, we have an advocate and we run to him and ask and confess and repent. But we know that obviously we want to do everything, nothing to break his heart. And I believe as the bride of Christ, as we near that time before Jesus comes back, and we don't know that time, but as we near that time, the truth of the matter is, things are going to begin to happen. And just like these revivals we believe are happening in these colleges, they're praying, all of a sudden, God works, begins to move. All of a sudden. And so when we pray, our prayers are not wasted. They're being stored up in heaven. I believe Revelation 5 talks about those, the incense going up and that bowl being tipped and the answers come forth. So at the right time, God will send forth His Spirit in a powerful way that we'll know, surely God is in this place. So I want to talk about the bride of Christ. And if you'd like to read, uh, stand with me today as we read the Scripture, you're, uh, certainly we invite you to do that. Just a couple of verses and we can read together. Husbands, Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it. They might sanctify it, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word. That he might present the church to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Amen. Then we're going to read from Second Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for these things, give diligence that you may be found in peace without spot and blameless in his sight. Amen. God had blessings to the reading of his word. Without spot or blemish. Okay. We're going to talk about that. I've always wondered because I'm going, Lord, I got blemishes. I got spots. I got all these things going on. How's that going to work before Jesus comes back? Because he said we'll be without spot or blemish. I want to give you assurance today. It's going to take place. This past week was Valentine's Day, right? Marriages. How did it begin? Whose idea was it? Okay, first of all, we, we know that it was not first a human thought or tradition here. Jesus said in Matthew 19 verse 4, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a wife will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. And so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man man not separate or let no one put asunder. Okay? What God has ordained here. Remember here, maybe in a simpler way, and thinking about it back in the Garden of Eden. And I can imagine Eve asking Adam, do you still love me, Adam? And Adam responded, who else is there? (laughs) Okay, think about it here. The idea of marriage was not first the relationship between a man and a woman, but first between God and his people here. 
In other words, human marriage is created in the image of God's love for us and not the other way around. And I believe that is what the apostle is saying here in the verses in Ephesians chapter 5 when he talks about it. And I believe that God gave us marriage not just to make us complete or to give us a helpmate or even a soulmate, although these are great, but so that we might learn to see his own love through the covenant of marriage. And I believe that marriage is a living parable for us so that we might better understand the love that God has for us. I mean, if we grasp and, and somehow revelation of the love of Jesus for us, it changes our hearts and lives, right? You came to Jesus to begin with because you realized that you had sinned. God gave you a revelation of the fact that you had fallen short of his glory, according to Romans chapter 3. And so that revelation came, and right behind the fact, the guilt and the shame and all those things and the conviction came the grace of God right then, right then, saying, I've forgiven you, not by any works, but by grace, a free gift. You receive it, and you believe it, and you just accept it. He says it's right behind that guilt and shame. And he frees us from that. And God wants us to be free because Jesus said, I came to set the captive free here. But why is it that Satan works so hard in marriages to destroy the marriage? It's because it's the foundation of society. It's the foundation of what God wants to take place in, in, in our society, in our culture today, in, in all of history today. Marriage is that, obviously, that parable. So look at the parallels that Paul uses in this passage. First of all, he talks about earlier in those verses, uh, the head of the wife is, is the husband, obviously. Well, Christ is the head of the church. And be subject to your husband as the church is subject to Christ. We are subject to Christ. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, sometimes you're saying, boy, that's a... That's a big menu here to be able to do that. And without the grace of God and without the power of God working, you can't do it. But God said this is one thing he wants you to do. And so we need to pray about that. And we need to walk in it as much as God reveals to us. But Christ also loves the church because we are members of his body. It says, and the two shall become one flesh. And it's, this mystery is great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church here. And so we should encourage husbands and wives to model their marriage on the image of Christ and his church, loving one another the way that Christ loved the church, laying down his life for her. So we see a visible model in the marriage of what Jesus did. We know Jesus went even further. And marriage is a covenant. Sometimes if we make a contract with somebody, we always think, well, it's not turning out so well. So we try, we say, well, let's just break that contract. But see, a covenant won't be breaking, broken. It's different. It's lifelong. And we know that God calls us to be with that one, no matter what, because you put two people under the same roof, and we know, obviously, there are differences. And we know, obviously, we differences in drive, difference in all types of differences, and we try to live it out. And actually, we think about it, and I think about it in terms of our wives sanctify us as husbands, really, if you get down to it. Because when we face that adversity in our marriage, and inevitably we will, no marriage is just completely bliss, although God has a, a special uh, blessing for us, certainly. But we know that we live that out. We live it out the way that Christ would live it out. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So, so here often I'm asking people to copy or imitate something they have a limited understanding of when we talk about this today. And so before we can imitate something, we've got to have an image of what we are imitating burnt deeply into our consciousness, in our heart of hearts. Because you and I need to grasp of this image of Christ as the heavenly bridegroom and you and I as the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom and you and I are the bride, right? Always think of us as that, as the body of Christ. And see, it's made up of different denominations, non-denominations and so forth, but we're all part of one body. We'll all be in heaven. I've always heard the expression, you've heard me say it before, is that if you have something against your brother here on this side, you need to go and get it right because it may be that in heaven that that person's mansion is right beside your mansion. You want to get it straight now before you go to heaven, right? So God desires you to be his forever companion in eternity. He proved it by sending his son into the world. The ultimate gift of love, the ultimate expression of love by sending Jesus Christ into the world, knowing that during that time of history that he would hang on a cross. That was the means of crucifixion. It wasn't, it didn't come as a surprise to God. He knew that his son would be nailed to a cross to die for the sins of the world. My sins and your sins. He took my sins on him and exchanged it for his righteousness. Theologically, it's called the great exchange. I gave you my sins by confessing my sins and accepting him, receiving him into my life. And I accepted his righteousness. He imputed, theologically is that term, imparted, giving his righteous to us. God sees us like he sees Jesus. He doesn't see us the way we see ourselves. That's why it's important to really see ourselves as God sees us. Because until then, what we'll do, we'll walk in shame. We won't ever fulfill the fullness and obviously the highest purposes that God has for all of us until we begin to have that revelation of who we are and how much Jesus loves us. God is doing that in our lives. That picture and looking at it several weeks ago, it's been several months ago, Nancy brought a video about the betrothal process there when a couple was getting married. And she gave us, uh, she, she brought it into our Sunday school class here. And real quick, in summarization, the groom would propose a legally binding contract for the would-be uh, bride with a glass of wine. And they would drink. They would agree to that contract, the bride and the groom there in Jewish custom. Again, going back to that time. And then the groom would go back to his parents' house and add a room on. And this is because the Jews of that day lived in extended family structures with homes literally take, having uh, annexes added on with each successive generation. And once the groom had finished the room for his bride, he'd come back to her to complete the marriage arrangements. So he prepared. Anybody getting the picture here of John chapter 14? Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. To trust in God and trust also in him. What? In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you so. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then I'll come back and receive you unto myself. That you may be where I am also. So Jesus, it could be said spiritually, is preparing that mansion or room, other translations, for you and me. 
for us to live with Him forevermore. Because why? We're His bride. We're His bride. And He's the groom. Wonderful illustration when you think about that today. Passion. Uh, talking about it. Passion for Jesus is the image that Jesus left with His disciples just before He was to be crucified. In a f- chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 26, that He might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. Passage tells us the purpose, his purpose for laying down his life for the church and his ultimate purpose for the church bride. And, and she, that being you and I, would be so cleansed that we would be perfectly acceptable on that glorious day when Christ comes for His bride. Marriage is the most intimate of human relationships. The imagery of marriage is used to describe Christ's relationship with the church because He wants us to recognize how deeply He loves us and how intimately He wants to relate to us. It's very intimate, okay? And we know when a husband... Uh, comes together and wife come together and so forth. And, and they have sexual intercourse. You think about how intimate that is. That is actually a spiritual thing. And why is it that the Bible tells us that all other sins are done outside the Bible, but when we obviously defile ourselves sexually, it is something that we do within the body. It's because there is a, there is a symbolism about when two, when a man and woman is joined together in that union. It is a spiritual union. You've always heard people saying when people jump from one to the other and so forth, what they do is actually take a part of that person's soul or leave a part of their soul with that person. It is a spiritual thing. It's very intimate. Now, I'm not talking about that in the sexual sense with with Jesus, but I'm talking about a relationship so deep and so lovely and, and being in love with Jesus Christ more than anything else in this whole wide world. That is the expression, what we're seeing here. We're being prepared, folks. Everybody know that? We're being prepared as the bride to be able to meet the bridegroom. We are getting ready. Amen. I don't know when that time will be, but the Bible says get ready. Because he could come back. We don't know when. He could come back at any time here. And so here's the expression I want to tell you. And you know what this means. Jesus Christ is head over heels in love with you and with me. Everybody get it? Jesus Christ is head over heels in love with you and me. Amen? I mean, when you understand that. And I know what you know, what you and I mean when we say I'm head over heels in love with this person here. And you think about it today. That's who our Savior is. He is head over heels. I mean, over heels in love with you and I. When Jesus said that our love is to die for, He meant it literally. It was a love that led Jesus to spread His hands out, to take the nails in His hands and in His feet. It was when He took the crown of thorns there, was wedged on His head, As each breath became shallower as He hung on the cross, the Son of God could have ended it all right then and it would have certainly ended the marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb we talked about in Revelation chapter 19. It would have ended all this stuff, but He didn't. Remember what He told Satan? He said, you don't own anything. I could call down legions of angels right now and wipe this whole place out and wipe you out right now. He told him, 
God is over all, folks. He hasn't lost control of what's going on in this society today. He hasn't lost control over your circumstances that you're going through and I'm going through. No matter what you think or what you feel today, our God rules and reigns. And he is preparing you and I to rule and reign with him. Hallelujah. The Bible is clear about that. Is that we'll be, we'll rule with him. We'll go there. Now, the work in heaven will be different than the work here because we won't have these old bodies to get tired. <laughs> we'll be able to work day and night, continuing on, worshiping him. I believe we'll be worshiping him 24-7. We'll be in his presence, his manifest presence. Those kids at Asbury and also there at Cedarville, although they experience the manifest presence of the Lord, oh God, almighty, the tangible presence. It's almost when God comes in, it's kind of like, I don't want, I don't want to move because the weight of his glory is falling upon the church to changes. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that we are changed from glory to glory. Hallelujah. God is saying He wants us to know how much He loves us. You know, if the peasant bride wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be worthy to wear the white garments of righteousness on their own, but Jesus gave us the garments. He made us righteous. He gave us His righteousness that we know we could go into his throne room of grace confidently, boldly, and ask for grace and mercy in our time of need. If it all depended on us, there wouldn't be any wedding. But Jesus couldn't bear to spend eternity without us. <laughs> he, couldn't spend, he couldn't bear to spend eternity without you and me. He had to plan from eternity past that all of this would culminate and come together. But see, the only way you and I can really understand it is a revelation. God revealing it to our hearts. Well, I want to tell you. But He longs to live out eternity with His betrothed. He belongs to. Let me tell you. Think about it. Ladies, imagine during your wedding, uh, if you got married, you wore a wedding dress, probably pretty one, right? Think about it. With uh, Emily and Taylor here a couple weeks ago. When I got lost in Missouri County, out in the fields, okay? And I remember standing up front with the congregation on both sides. And when the doors opened in the back back there, here was Emily and, his, and her father there, Frankie, at the back of the, uh, the chapel area and so forth. I mean, she was brilliant. I looked at that dress. I said, what a beautiful wedding dress. I mean, come on. It's just awesome here. And uh, I, Taylor's standing beside me, and I can tell he's starting to move and fidget, so he's getting nervous, and he's looking like, boy, she's more beautiful than I could ever imagine. And she's walking down that aisle. Here she comes. And Taylor, I mean, he's getting more and more excited. I want to tell you, if I had a stethoscope and put up against his chest, his heart would have been going, right, okay? A doctor would have probably pronounced him up here on the stage, right? But he was looking, he was like, wow, look how beautiful she is. Look at that. And she came down and, and they stood. And, and of course, Frankie gave him, uh, her and her, he and her, her, his wife gave her to Taylor and all and coming up and so forth. She was beautiful. Now, we know that some ladies' gowns cost obviously thousands of dollars, right? It was, I mean, come on. Sometimes you think about it and you're going, wow, these are some expensive dresses. You know, you think about it. And so you think about it. I've always thought about it. I know one, no one else here has. But certainly, that one dress is only worn for one day. Why is that? 
I mean, I was thinking, can you wear it in a party or somewhere else? No. You put it in the closet. You take and put it up where the moths won't get to it and so forth. And you put it up. Uh, why can't, is there anything else we can do with that dress? No. We can't do it. Well, it costs thousands of dollars. And we're going to use it for that one day here. Obviously, I believe it's because she desires to look her very best for this singular occasion. The union with her engaged. Price, in many instances, it makes no difference, right? She wants to. You get the picture? We're the bride of Christ. It doesn't make any difference. The cost that we pay, it doesn't make any difference. We're going to be wedded to our, our groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. The intimacy, the closeness, the relationship, the love affair between the two. And the more you understand this, because the more you reflect upon this, the more you realize that this is what life is all about. We're being prepared. We're getting our dress on. God's taken and, and, and those wrinkles, those, some of those habits and addictions and all those things. I mean, you know, we're, we're struggling with this and that and so forth. But let me tell you, our God is breaking these chains in His way and His time. All these things experientially will be gone. God says, I'm going to do it. Why? How do I know that? It's because Philippians 1.6 says it. When Paul said, this is the confidence. And when you say, this is the trust that I have, that he who began a good work within you will bring it to the completion of the day of Christ Jesus. This is the confidence that we have. He began a good work in you. You're here because of that. You're here for today knowing that obviously that he started something. What does it mean? He'll finish what he started. He always finishes what he started. Obviously, this interesting thing about this passage that the bride doesn't make herself perfect. The groom perfects her. Imagine how beautiful will be the gown of the bride of Christ, which by His grace, He'll use the very righteous deeds and good works which He created us to perform as the material for the fine linen of her remnant. Our passage says that she'll be without spot or wrinkle or blemish here. It implies without sin. None of us can claim sinlessness but Christ alone. But He alone will cleanse us from all of our sin and He alone makes us pure without spot or stain. Isn't that great? Everybody get that? You've been worried about how you're going to be spotless and blameless. We all know our weaknesses. And I'm talking about after we came to Christ. We know all the challenges. We got a bullseye on our back. The devil, man, he hits us. Before then, we were in his camp. When we come out of his camp and come in Jesus' camp, then the battle becomes. The warfare gets worse because we know he wants us to keep us from becoming the witness that he desires for us to be. And he comes at us full force ferociously and he is consistent. Trust me, you know it and I know it. And so the war is there. We know. At times we stumble and fall. And if it wasn't for the chapter of 1 John, the first chapter, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I mean that word cleansing is a continual. In the, as far as the Greek is concerned, it's continual. He's just cleansing me and you all the time. Like that chocolate fountain I've always talked about. It's continual. I love a chocolate fountain. It just flows and flows. And you put your, your marshmallows under there. It keeps flowing. You don't stop it. It's cleansing. Amen? But it's the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. It's Jesus' blood. 
getting you and I ready for that wrinkle, holy, and without blemish. You wonder why women wear makeup? Um, well, this is it. Well, our earthly bodies, we got blemishes, scars, spots on our skin, our faces, wrinkles, and, and women cover them up. Please don't talk to me after the service about this. I have no idea. I just know you wear makeup. Okay. And they shrink the wrinkles sometimes with Botox and other things, right? Okay. And I know I'm getting into some real barracuda waters right now, but I want to tell you, that's what they do. But see, when we obviously as the bride of Christ, you'll not have any spots, wrinkles or spots or blemishes. You won't need any heavenly makeup. You got the blood of Jesus covering you and me. Hallelujah. That's a good, good thing. The best news there's ever been. That's why the gospel said the good, the, the good news, the best news you and I will ever hear. Fortunately, when Christ comes with the church, he is going to have to put makeup on us. Our wrinkles, spots, and stains will all be gone and we'll be made perfect. And I want to tell you, it's going to be good. First John chapter three, it says, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You think here, the idea isn't that the bride is in the state before the wedding day, but on that wedding day, the church will be in a state of glory. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a theologian, years back, I get different quotes from him. Listen to what he says. When he presents her, the bride, to himself, Jesus, all the principalities and powers and the ranks for all the powers of heaven will look on this marvelous thing and examine her. There'll not be a single blemish. There'll not be a single spot upon her. The most careful examination will not be able to detect the slightest speck of unworthiness or of sin. Now, is that good news? Man, I know my weaknesses. You do too. I know, obviously, the challenge we face. It's in this life. As long as you're in this wor world, you'll have this flesh that battles against you. You have the world battling against you. You have your flesh battling against you. And you got the devil battling against you. All three coming against you. But we have the power of the Holy Spirit. And we don't have the yield. But when we stumble and fall, we have an advocate. His name is Jesus, who paid it all. And he paid for your sins, past, present, and future. Hallelujah. There won't be it. During that day, certainly here. Can you imagine here? The wedding is the purpose, his, the highlight of all creation. There stands King Jesus, his heart full of joy. And here comes his bride the redeemed of mankind, dressed in pure white, wearing the righteousness of Christ. The King of creation, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, is looking for His bride to rule and reign with Him. And some were amazed there when you look at it, the wedding ceremony of the royal family. I mean, you're talking about some pomp and circumstance in that, right? You've seen those weddings over there in England. I mean, they, they go all out, right? They go all out to do... They, they, they don't lack anything. When you look at it, the whole thing and, and, you know, some of the weddings, you know, here, we've had a couple weddings here, uh, recently. Beautiful. I mean, beautiful here when you think about it today. But when we get married to Jesus, we married, we got married to him when we accepted him here. The fullness of that will be when he comes again and the bride is taken up too, also. But let me tell you, it's going to be a glorious, what, what a glorious, the Bible talks about, oh, what a glorious day that will be. Jesus, we see the one thing I've noticed here about couples who are engaged to be married and y'all have too, is they become obsessed with preparation. 
Anybody notice that? Everything's got to be right. If anything, little flowers out of place, the, the uh, bride, they'll go over and move this around, and all the groom is everything. They've got the, the coat and tie or the tux on, whatever. They're just fixed up. they got the hair. they got a haircut and all that. I don't need a haircut. I, oh, I, I need a haircut now. I'll let my hair go. Willis doesn't need a haircut, but he'll get a haircut anyway, right? Amen? <laughs> Amen. They obsessed with, obviously, preparation. They want to make sure everything is right. The dresses, the hair, the makeup. It all needs to be just right. Why? Is it so that their fiancé will want to marry them? No, just the opposite. They want to look their best because their fiancé is marrying them. Because they are head over heels in love with their groom. Head over heels in love with Jesus. Don't you want to love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? The Bible tells there are two commandments that are summed up. And love your neighbors, yourself. Love the Lord. Don't you want to be in love with the bridegroom? Don't you want to be in love with Him? Don't you want to just, if anything in your heart is not right with Him, don't you want to come before Him and say, Lord, get rid of it. Take it out of my life. I don't want it there. Don't you want to come and run to Him fast? Just run back into His arms when you do stumble and fall and say, Lord, forgive me. I don't want to break your heart under any circumstances. Do you feel that way today? That's what the bride is getting prepared to do. We want to love him and love him in that manner like we never have before. Being in love with him, you see. We want our hearts to be pure, our thoughts to be clean. We want our lives to be marked by grace and love. And we want to be prepared for his, co for his coming. It's not so that he will love us. He's already proven his love for us when he went to Calvary. We want to be that pure, spotless bride because He loves us. Intimacy here is the description of the two becoming one flesh here. It's coming so close together. I've performed many weddings, I believe, in my ministry, more funerals because I was a hospice chaplain. But there's never a groom who didn't smile with delight as his bride thinking she's all mine. And this is the beauty I'm talking about. Our bridegroom rejoices saying of his bride, I'm the apple of her eye. She'd rather spend time with me than with anyone else. And that makes her beautiful to me. Is that true to you? You'd rather spend time with Jesus? See, we can come in these walls every Sunday or in our activities like on Saturday night. And yes, we can have a, a certain amount of intimacy there. But are you walking with Jesus every day in that intimate relationship? Are you desiring Him to be your all in all? Do you know He's the lover of your soul? Do you know he's your everything? Do we treat him that way? Let me tell you, there are a lot of things vying for your attention and my attention. I'm talking personally. You know, you got the TV. We got the big screens now. I mean, we used to have, obviously, if you went to um, a theater outside there and so forth. I mean, our TVs are bigger than that screen, right? And then when you go from one room to the other, you got a computer in the other room. You go for one. You always got something there trying to get your attention. I'll tell you something else. It really gets our attention. And y'all all know what it is. It's a little rectangular shaped instrument that many of you have in your pocket or in your purses, right? The cell phone. The other night, Cindy and I were out eating at a particular place. And I was looking at this uh, older couple. I say older because I'm older too. But obviously, I always think everybody's older than I am, right? Okay. Isn't that the way we think? It's distorted. It's distorted, but that's the way we think. 
And they were sitting over there eating, okay? And after they finished eating, they both pulled their cell phones out. And I said, look at them. I don't know how they are. Oh, they are. They may, I'm sure they're, um, you know, 85, 90 years old, whatever. They pulled the cell phones out and started going through it. And I'm going, I watched them to see. Are they going to say a word to one another? Or are they going to continue to scroll? Well, they continued to scroll and went on. The distractions that we have in our society, our culture today, are numerous. And so I would just end this short time together. Look at what really grabs your attention. Is Jesus the love of your soul, the one that he's saying, I'm preparing you. Do all other things get our attention more than he does? When he comes in power, oh, he'll get our attention. He wants us. And he wants us, obviously, he's a jealous God. He wants you and I in that relationship with him. And he wants it because he loves us. In Luke chapter 14, so, so then any of you who does not forsake or renounce or surrender or claim to, or give up, say goodbye to. All that he, he has cannot be my disciple. Matthew 28 says, go and make disciples, right? Yes, there will be people converted and saved and born again. But I'm talking about the ultimate goal is they become disciples, followers of Jesus. Not just Christians, yes, but followers of Jesus. Wanting to go do the works that Jesus did. Lay hands on the sick. And, and preach the gospel and see people healed and, and see people delivered and see the power of God go forth. These are the things He's commissioned you and I to do. Each one of us, not just pastors, but the congregation. When the congregation is operating in the gifts of the Spirit, let me tell you, nothing can stop that congregation. And we need to look for times out in the culture today for people that need prayer. Look for people. Let me tell you, we get our eyes on the fact that we go, we're going in there to perform a particular task and we get focused on that. We've got narrow uh, vision because that's all we see when we need to be looking outside the box and looking for people around us who are hurting, who need to know the hope that comes only through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. That's what you and I have been created for. To share that with other people. You have old loves that have kind of come in. Other lovers. And I'm not talking about sleeping with everybody. I'm talking about other things that have taken Jesus' place first in your life. Other things. Other activities. Religion can become an activity. Doing things for Jesus can become. Nothing wrong with serving the Lord with gladness. Right? But what he's saying today, do you want just Jesus? Do you want just Him? Are you, are you just in love with Him, so enthralled with Him that obviously you, you, you'll take nothing less? Remember the story in Luke chapter 10? Martha was in the kitchen working. Remember? She's busy. She's getting ready. And that's what we do, right? What do we do? We, we sometimes will get busy. Why? It's because we're a little bit afraid of intimacy. We're a little bit of coming before Jesus because we're thinking, oh gosh, He'll look and He knows my flaws. He knows the things that are on my heart here. He knows, obviously, those things that, that I just want to share with anybody. Okay, He already knows. And we sometimes bounce off and go doing things. But remember, what was Mary doing? He was, she was seated at the feet of Jesus. And remember what Jesus said? Always remember this. Jesus told her, she said, you know, Martha, you're busy at many things, but Mary has chosen the best thing. And then he goes on to say, 
And the best thing will never be taken away from her. Just sit with Jesus. Why do we choose to go through the motions instead of just getting with the Lord and asking him, just sitting and saying, I don't care. I've got a grocery list of things I want you to answer, please, Lord. But I just want you. I just want you. I just want to sit in your presence. Jesus spent time alone with the Father. He spent time alone, didn't he? Nobody else. Distractions. So I want to encourage you. The conversation is two-way. Listen. Open my ears, Lord, that I may hear you. You remember what God said uh, there? Uh, Samuel said to God, he said, speak, Lord, because your servant's listening. I say, speak, Lord, because your son is listening. And then sit, just sit in his presence. I encourage you to do something real simple. This is something I do. You do it the way God directs you. But this is what I do, and it be a model for you. I'll sit before the Lord. I'll get alone and get quiet. I have to get still because my mind is racing. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I was talking to him and and, uh, and, we, and we know that when we start sitting down, my mind starts racing and going every which way. Sit and just remain calm. Just sit for a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to come. Come, Holy Spirit. He's here, and He's here right now. But I want to feel your presence. I want to know I'm in your presence. And just sit for a moment. Come, Holy Spirit, and just sit. And maybe whisper something like, I just want you. I don't want anything else. I just want you. Because only you can satisfy. None other can satisfy. And sit until you feel His presence. God will show up. Keeping on. It's a discipline. And prayer is a discipline. Richard Foster wrote a book years ago about the celebration of discipline. That solitude is powerful. He'll change you. And just sit and wait upon Him. I'd like for us all to stand in closing. And I want to pray this prayer over you. And we know that prayer can... What does amen mean? Yes, Lord, I agree with you. If you'd stand and I'm going to pray this prayer because I feel like this covers so much. But I want to ask God to impart this to you today. And you can pray along with me as I do it. And you can amen. Dear Jesus, I want to be beautiful in your sight. Forgive me for spending so much time on everything else but you. Give me a new heart to know you. I want to grow in intimacy with you. I've taken you to be my Lord and Savior. I now renew my promise to you to worship and adore, to serve and obey, to love and to cherish. And to you I promise my first love now and to eternity. Oh, I was and am and ever will be. I give to you. I forsake all other loves of this world to love you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, I ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would impart this to the lives of this congregation. And dear God, we ask you the flames of revival would would sweep forth and others would again pass that flame on to their friends, their families, to their acquaintances, to their work partners and so forth, Lord. And we pray that we would give our hearts over to you totally and without reservation. In Jesus' name, amen.